I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. And today, it's just me. We call this little bit we do at the start of the episode the up top. We recorded one last week for today's episode in which I threw to a clip of activist Tamika Mallory talking about how people can take action after the murder of George Floyd. After that, I said we were going to do a 180 and began spending the next nine minutes talking about my love of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and my excitement over today's guest, Charisma Carpenter. Shortly thereafter, we decided to postpone the episode a week, thinking that it felt a bit tone-deaf to release. But it gnawed at me still, my inability to substantively weigh in on this conversation, when weighing in on culture isn't just my job, it's my passion. I've been thinking a lot about my own dormancy as an anti-racist. When I first started at Mike.com as their senior style editor, I assumed the work of my predecessor, a white woman who had been championing marginalized voices within fashion, black people, plus size people, queer people, people with disabilities. In 2016, for instance, I edited a story with the headline, This model is calling out the fashion industry for failing women with natural hair. The model being Ducky Thought. Ducky posted her thoughts on Instagram, and we assembled them into a post that went viral, and I received praise from my mostly white superiors. I didn't even fully grasp at the time what natural hair was or just how normal Ducky's experience was for our myriad Black readers. I just saw the numbers. I became emboldened to continue covering these issues. I cared about them deeply, but did I really understand them? When my now dear friend Monroe Bergdorf was fired from a L'Oreal campaign in August of 2017 for anti-racist remarks that she made, we ran half a dozen stories in an attempt to champion Monroe and uplift her voice and her message. But Monroe had been fired from a gig, whereas I was not only gainfully employed, I was profiting off of telling her story. I a white man. If you know anything about the media ecosystem, you know how white it is. How publications like Us Weekly, The Daily Mail, and more front-load white stories, white faces, white bodies, and in doing so, perpetuate white supremacy. I think it's incumbent upon people like myself, people who think they are the good guy, to question our own role in all of this. We're not the good guy so long as we allow for the bad guys to succeed. I think about how when we had our first guest, Christopher John Rogers, we spent so much time talking about his blackness as it relates to his experience in the fashion industry. I asked the same questions of Vincent with regards to the music industry, with Peppermint with regards to RuPaul's Drag Race, with Larry Owens with regards to the theater community. Only with my black guests did I feel free to engage in topics of race. Worse, I felt like I was having the difficult conversations the other interviewers weren't. Again, me, me, me. How deeply misguided I was. There are so many ways in which my whiteness creeps into my work, mostly with no consciousness, and that's a problem. When I wrote about the recent reckoning of actress Leah Michelle for Oprah Magazine, it became so clear as I was skeletoning the story that this was a story about white privilege in the workplace, at best, And at worst, a story about white supremacy. When Samantha Ware, a Black actress who appeared on Glee's final season, spoke out, it was three other Black actors on the show who spoke out in support of her or with their own experiences with with Michelle. 
It wasn't until after Leah's half-assed apology that Brittany Morris, Gerard Kenenko, Emma Hunton, and other white co-workers felt compelled to weigh in. At that point, dunking on Leah came without risk. Hell, it was trendy. Quote, I think that because racism in all of its forms is at the top of everyone's minds right now, people are feeling more liberated than before to speak about it. And a lot of things are coming up, years old things, because at least at this moment, people are listening. Danielle Prescott, style director at BET, told me in an interview for the story. She continued, I think that in her heart, Leah Michelle truly believes that she's not a racist. I think she truly believes that she treats all people equally. But the fact of the matter is that even unconsciously, she was exercising white supremacy over people because she, in her mind, felt superior to them. I think we as a society need to look at who we reward and why. The moral of the story, if you want to call it that, came when I heard former Glee cast member Amber Riley speak to journalist Danielle Young. Riley said this, quote, I'm not going to say that Leah Michelle is racist. That's not what I'm saying. That was the assumption because of what's going on right now in the world, and it happened toward a black person. I'm not going to say that she's racist. She's also pregnant, and I think that everybody needs to kind of chill. Y'all dragged her for a couple days. But at the same time, in my inbox, there are a lot of black actors and actresses telling me their stories and letting me know how they've dealt with the same things being on set, being terrorized by the white girls that are the leads of the show. We were even told we were expendable, the colored girls, the black girls are expendable. I'm talking about the culture of Hollywood right now and how they treat black characters, black men, black women. I'm talking about the culture. I take from other cultures and I put it into my work regularly. Work that I'm praised for, work that gets my name out there and ultimately raises my monetary value within the media ecosystem. Maybe I get ahead because I'm smart, Surely I get ahead because I'm white. There's a viral tweet going around right now from a Twitter user at Taskaneki that reads, for John Boyega to say he doesn't know if he'll have a career after this while non-black celebs are being praised for simply acknowledging the BLM movement is very telling. So here's how I'm going to change. I'm going to try to use my Instagram platform to call out racism in the same way as I have used it to call out Insta thoughts. And no surprise, there's a lot of overlap in those demographics. I'm going to make monetary contributions to victim memorial funds, like justice for Breonna Taylor, bail funds, like the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, frontline funds, like the Black Earth Farms Food Delivery Funds, community restoration organizations and funds like the Minnesota Rapid Response Coalition, police reform organizations like the Black Visions Collective, and I'm going to commit to continue educating myself about these organizations. I'm also going to make sure these monetary contributions are rolling and not only a one-time give. We can't just put a Band-Aid on this and call it a day. No more calling on my Black friends to educate me. It's not cute. I'm also going to commit to using this platform more to have what will no doubt be some uncomfortable conversations with white people about race in the same way I felt all too comfortable to do with my Black guests. That's a start bare fucking minimum. I implore any non-Black identifying listeners with any kind of platform at all to use it, not only to say Black Lives Matter, but to become active anti-racists. And with that, we're going to turn over to Charisma Carpenter. This episode was taped weeks ago. America was still a hellscape, but it felt, at least for me then, easier to ignore. I'm glad it's not anymore. Thank you for listening. She is best known for her portrayal of Cordelia Chase, a high school sophomore turned higher power on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and later on the show's spinoff series, Angel. Between the two shows, she appeared in 147 episodes. In addition to Buffy and Angel, Carpenter portrayed Kira on Charmed, Kendall Casablancas on Veronica Mars, Rebecca Sewell in The Lying Game, and Lacey in the Expendables film series opposite Jason Statham. She has also made appearances on CSI, Burn Notice, Supernatural, Blue Bloods, Sons of Anarchy, Scream Queens, Chicago PD, Lucifer, and 911. She is inspiring, passionate, unafraid, and engaging. She's a total badass. She is Charisma Carpenter. Charisma, thank you so much for making the time. I feel like this is a long time coming. I'm so flattered to join you and be invited on your show. You are a force to be reckoned with. 
I mean, I followed your Insta. I saw you on my Twitter and then I started following you because your personality and your viewpoint was so strong and I was very attracted to your voice and calling the bullshit out. I just was like, who is this person? I love it. And now it's like, you're so big time. Then I feel like you exploded like that. Are you having that experience? It's an interesting thing because one thing I sort of talk about sometimes on the pod is like, and I'm sure you're aware of this, the more eyeballs you have on you, the more susceptible you are to criticism or people taking Mm -hmm. something that you said and misinterpreting it or interpreting it how they want to hear it. So that's one thing that's kind of newer for me. But I imagine you've dealt with that for quite some time, no? I haven't had a massive backlash I'm sure it will happen. It's inevitable and I'm not looking forward to it. And I definitely do try to exercise caution before I push tweet. And I really do try to think about that. But like today I tweeted something that I was thinking, oh gosh, I could really see this backfiring and it coming off tone deaf, but I really hope it doesn't. And so far it seems to be fine, but I'm always a little, you know, wary but I can't not say what I need to say. <laughs> I just can't help myself, which is not, not always a good thing. But I think that's one of the things that I find so attractive about you is your willingness to sort of say those things that I feel like a lot of other actors and actresses who might not feel like they can have a voice on those subjects. I like the fact that you actually feel not only compelled to, but it seems like you almost feel obligated to use your platform. I think it stems back to my childhood and feeling a strong sense of injustice when things don't go well or they didn't go well or fairly. At a very early age, I was always sticking up for the underdog or I was always that person that saw injustice and was outraged by it. And I think since 2016, it's been an inundation of outrage. And then there comes this sort of slow realization that it's an echo chamber to a certain degree. And it's kind of futile to continually rah, rah. Like you have to, in a certain way, pick and choose your battles and try to rise above in your messaging and to not resort to name calling. There is this obligation that I feel internally to express myself and to say my truth as I see it. And I'm 100% able and malleable to say that I'm wrong if I'm wrong or have somebody explain it to me. I don't think I'm the be all end all of a topic and I don't feel like I'm a subject matter expert on any particular topic. I just operate from a gut level. And since 2016, I've 110% up to my civil engagement because all of my rights, my uterus was being legislated away. And I just felt so outraged by that and the gerrymandering and the suppressing of votes and making it impossible for people to be heard, especially the minorities and especially this particular demographic that Republicans cannot tolerate a vote from because they know they will not win. So I digress. It's all like that. But very well said. I, I, so I, I, I just no, I mean, I think it, it, it's so resonant to hear that you're so plugged into what's going on. And I know, like you said, it's perhaps not an obligation and maybe you see it as selfish, but as someone watching your social media, I so enjoy how present you are within the medium and how much what you're saying speaks to people like me. So anyway, I'll digress as well. So I'm curious, you're in quarantine right now, as are we, obviously. You have your 17-year-old son with you in quarantine. And Andrew Cuomo made a speech the other day, and he was talking about this time with his daughters and saying Mm -hmm. how unique it was that never in his life has he been able to spend so much time with his kids as adults. With his 20-year-olds. Exactly. They're in college, yeah. Right. But I imagine, too, you know, having a 17-year-old, I imagine he's out and about a lot in the world. What has it been like for you getting to spend this time, this precious time with your son? Priceless. It really has, especially like our evening walks. You know, that is kind of going to be something I'm going to miss about quarantine, which is those evening walks and seeing the activity in my neighborhood. And it's just a time where our phones are put away and we're really plugged into the moment. You know, we're naturally engaging in a conversation as it occurs or observations that are being made in the moment. And we're able to like parlay that into a more evolved conversation. And I'm getting to know my son in a way that I feel incredibly privileged to do. He is a neat kid. He's so smart. And like his mama, he is very autonomous. 
and likes to push that envelope. And I, at the same time, frustrated by that, applaud it and want to fan that, those embers of autonomy and independence. I mean, ultimately, the optimal position of a parent is to set your kids free and that they feel comfortable expressing themselves as an independent and that they are able to make decisions on their own and that they are able to think cognitively and to be able to think through a feeling or an act like, oh, I just want to get high right now. I just want to get drunk or I just want to have sex with this person or whatever, like that you can think through that feeling or that emotion with a beginning, middle and end and play it out. And, you know, it's just so neat to have those dialogues and to hear how he processes things. Also, at times, it's incredibly frustrating. We just had a disagreement when we were walking yesterday. <laughs> what were we? I don't remember exactly what it was we were talking about, but we were incredibly frustrated with each other. And I think, too, when you're raising a boy and you're a woman and you're used to feeling shut down, even on Twitter, you know, like, you're a female, you're an actress, you're out of my tax bracket, therefore, you don't get to comment or you don't have a say on people going back to work or not. You know, and I just, out of outrage and injustice, feel compelled to say, no, 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 contraire, mon frere. Like, I am every bit of an American as you are, no matter what tax bracket I'm in. And of course, I'm sensitive to and very, very familiar, acutely aware of job insecurity. I mean, it goes with the vocation. I'm unemployed all the time. I'm more unemployed than I am unemployed. So I'm completely aware of what you're saying. But with my son, as it relates to him, it's just learning his communication style and respecting it. And then also as a mama, being able to say to him, you know, hey, don't fall into this trap of dismissing me because A, I'm your parent, so you just want to go blah, blah, blah. You don't know. I can't relate to you. You don't get my my problems are different than when you were growing up 100 years ago. Like that or dismissing me for whatever reason he wants or feels compelled to do. Or you're taking this personally, mom. This is not personal. It's like, no, no, no. When you said this, that made it personal. And I need you to be aware that when you're communicating with women in your life, in your future, that's a trap where you don't get to say this thing that triggers me in this way and then gaslight me and act like I'm outrageous or crazy for saying or calling you on this particular statement that is incredibly personal. You know, you don't get to say you're being ridiculous or that's ridiculous. Like you don't get to dismiss or devalue my opinion because you don't agree with it. You get to respect my opinion and challenge my opinion, but you don't get to say demoralizing things like you're ridiculous or that's dramatic or whatever those things are. And as men, I don't know what his situation is with his peers or whatever, but I really want to bring that to his awareness as he communicates with people and women, particularly in the future. Mm. Very long, drawn out answer. No, I like it. It's substantive. I want to ask you, do you like being interviewed? Yes and no. Yes, I'm a talker. I'm very people-oriented, but I almost always get myself in trouble. So you spent some time as a San Diego Chargers cheerleader. Can you talk about your experiences of getting that gig and what that was like? When I got that job, let's see, I was in property management at the time and I got in that job because dancing was such a big part of my life. Right. And so I was doing property management, which meant I was sitting on my butt a lot. So I really love the performance aspect and I love dance and learning the combinations. However, I was literally the weakest link. And this is why. I'm a classical ballerina. I was classically trained and I had this very beautiful and iconic Russian technique ballet teacher named Inez Moring, Ice Queen. She was so icy. And her daughter was involved with the San Diego Chargers and she suggested that I get involved. And so then I did and I auditioned. There were like hundreds and hundreds of girls. And I ended up getting on the team, but I'm not really sure why in the sense that none of the dances were kind of fussy is the best way to explain it. Like I'm very good at choreographed dancing, but hip hop and ballet, classical ballet are completely independent from one from the other. Ballet, you're up and you're high and you're through the top of your head and hip hop is low and knees bent and like, you know, your feet are in and it's just like 
completely opposite worlds. So I had that sort of trained aspect and I could do all of the tests and I could pick up all of the routines well. And then I had to do hip hop and it was just not good. So then shortly thereafter, you get your first large series regular gig on Malibu Shores, which is this Aaron Spelling show. And for people that don't remember, at this time, like Aaron Spelling was the guy you wanted to work for on television. He was this hit maker. And so what was that like for you sort of getting this gig and also having the, you know, we're talking about job security earlier. At that point, you have this job security of a regular paycheck coming in. And especially as a young person. Well, it was my first paid, like long-term, like where you sign a contract for the next five years. But there's still no guarantee that it's going to go the five years. But when you're dealing with Aaron Spelling, like everything he touches is turns to gold. So obviously it was a defining moment. And, and I still feel like the people that I worked with on that show to this day are probably one of the most talented groups of people to have been associated with. He was incredibly generous. You know, in fact, when I auditioned for the part, they really, really wanted me to do well. And I was new to the industry and I was not as vocal or Cordy-esque as I am today. Like I didn't have my voice at that time. I was still very shy almost. And the part called for me to be, you know, straight up bitchy. And I remember having to have a private session with the casting director to really kind of pull out my inner bitch. And one of the things that she had said to me was, you know, Heather Locklear is one of the nicest people in the world but she plays one hell of a bitch and you need to go home. And in the next two hours before you come back here for this audition, you need to tap into that bitch. I don't know what you got to do, but don't hold back. And I was like, okay. So I went to see a friend. I ran my dialogue and I went to the audition and I was chewing gum at the time. And I was in this audition and Aaron Spelling was there in his, you know, famous office with his couch as long as my entire building. And he was so kind to me. And I'm sitting there doing my audition in between scenes. The casting director, she laid into me. She rips off a piece of paper. I think she's going to tell me, like, give me a note because she had had me in her office, you know, hours before. Like, you're doing great or good job. No. The message was, spit your fucking gum out. Like, this is unacceptable. I don't know who you think you are coming into my audition with this. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It was like one of those moments. And he was smart enough to see how damaging that could be to the process of me performing well. So to ease the tension, he said, oh, don't worry about it, Charisma. You can have plenty of that on set. And I was like, thanks, Aaron. And so then I like go back to the scene and I ended up getting the part, but it was quite the story. Wow. Quite the experience. I was shook for a minute, a hot minute. So you're on that show. It's 1996. Buzz begins to generate around Hollywood that this film from 1992, a failed film, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is going to be turned into a television show. So failed, is that like, is that a fact? Well, I say failed at the box office. That part is a fact. Did it do well? It didn't yeah, do no, well. it didn't okay. do well. Which I actually think the Buffy film is kind of undervalued. And I actually feel like the camp factors of it would be better understood today. But a conversation for another day. But so you start to hear about this show coming around. You go in. Famously, you've talked about this before. You originally auditioned for Buffy. Blah, blah, blah. You end up getting this part of Cordelia. Do you remember in the beginning, before you even began shooting, do you remember what the buzz around town was about Buffy? It was less about Buffy and more about the creator. The creator had buzz because he had won an Oscar or for Toy Story and that he was this, you know, prodigy creator. And it was being brought up by Sandy Gallen and Dolly Parton as Sandollar, uh, which is iconic. Don't you love how that story goes around every once in a while? People newly discover that information that Dolly Parton was yeah. executive producer of Buffy. I mean, she's she's like the first... Hollywood feminist to look up to in a way. She just wrote all of her own content. She was across the board in all mediums, it feels like. But I digress. The Buffy situation was, I was already on a show and I was obligated to Malibu Shores, this Aaron Spelling show. But the word on the street was it wasn't doing well. Like NBC was on the set. They were in the makeup and hair chair. They were kind of breathing down the throats of everybody, trying to turn it into something. 
but it wasn't working. So I think that my talent people were trying to find another vehicle for me unbeknownst to me. So I go to this audition, you know, because the word on the street is that it's not going to go. So I'm able to go an audition and they take me in second position for Buffy. And so when I went to shoot the pilot of Buffy, I had to drive from Malibu because I was working on Malibu Shores, which we shot in, in Malibu at these outrageous, freaking amazing locations. And I'm shooting the pilot it down in Torrance, which was, you know, funny. Buffy was just sort of like this underdog thing on this underdog network that nobody would really heard of. And yeah, it was, that's quite the success story. It really is. And I feel like in many ways, I mean, obviously I know Seventh Heaven was on the WB at that point, but I feel like in many ways, Buffy and Dawson's Creek combined with Seventh Heaven really established that entire network. So I think one of the interesting things about Buffy And one thing that I love so much about it is that the first season was shot in its entirety before it ever aired. And I imagine as an actor, whereas other shows, you might be able to get fan feedback and get a sense of sort of like what the fans are feeling about the show. That whole season of that show was shot in silo, you know, never sort of knowing the cultural impact it would then have. When you got to episode seven, eight, nine, ten, what was that experience like of being that deep into a character and no one had seen the show yet? And here you are wrapping up the season. I just don't think we really felt any kind of real impact until maybe season two or three. Maybe it was season two, sooner than three. I think when it kind of really got serious is when I think Sarah was doing SNL and on the cover of Rolling Stone and we were doing photo shoots for people. I think when the critics, I think it was the critics that really propelled it in that way. And it was just such a neat thing to have this show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which seems so vacuous and silly and stupid. And it was just like this little show that could on this little teeny tiny network with a dancing frog with a top hat and cane yes. and then just <laughs> dominating the sort of, it was just sort of filling this thirst for all these craving teens for something that was identifiable and all the Shakespearean themes of being invisible and in school or, you know, a man eater is actually a pre mantis where you have the crushes on the wolf pack, you know, and Halloween where you literally turn into your character and just all of these wonderful, wonderful imaginative things were just really resonating and still today resonating. Incredible. I think one of the fascinating things about the character of Cordelia and your portrayal of her is how smart she really is. You know, I love the fact that Cordelia tests so well on the SATs, for instance, Mm. and she has so many layers. Cordelia, the spatula. You hear me? I hear you, you redneck moron. You got a dress that goes with that hat? (laughs) Rip out my innards, play with my eyeballs, boil my brain and eat it for brunch? Listen up, needle brain. Buffy and I have taken out four of your cronies, not to mention your girlfriend. Wife! Whatever. The point is, I haven't even broken a sweat. See, in the end, Buffy's just the runner-up. I'm the queen. You get me mad? What do you think I'm going to do to you? Those layers, I feel like, got enriched more and more as the show went on. What was your experience like of playing a character for that long and watching both, you know, you as a person are growing older, Mm -hmm. the writers are growing older, everyone's becoming more familiar with which characters work with other characters and whatnot. So I'm just so curious what it's like to play a character for that long and, and develop her. It's about as good as it can get. You know, it's about as good as it can get in that you really get a chance to stretch your legs and get comfortable in a role and make new discoveries and to be able to change so much and, you know, to be kind of one note and have one point of view and it just be peppered or sort of like the salt guy, you know, how he just kind of flavors it. Occasionally you find out that she's smart. Occasionally you find out that she's neglected at home. Occasionally you find out that she's very much alone. And even though she's in a room full of people, occasionally you get little tastes of these things and her awareness, her self-awareness, that is one of the most beautiful things that I can look back on and was completely obtuse to in the moment, which was she's really self-aware. She is so freaking aware that people are using her for her status and she's going along with it. She's allowing it to happen because honestly, it's better to 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To be alone surrounded by people than it is by yourself. These are like really sort of nuggets to hold on to and to inform you going forward. And it's revealed to you script by script. And it just gets better and better and richer and richer. You mentioned sort of Cordelia talking about the loneliness that she feels and that others too feel. And that happened in a season three episode, Earshot. I remember that that episode was originally pulled from air because of the Columbine shooting. Yes. Um, Do you recall what it was like seeing real life reflect art in the worst way possible? That was an indicator that we were doing something very real and very relevant. And I, there's no other word that kind of comes to mind other than just very real. I mean, we're touching on real stuff, you know? And I just remember personally bringing it back to me as a, as a teenager, I remember being in love with a boy and being told that I was going to fall in love 19 times over again. This is just nothing. This is just a blip on the radar, like move on. To be made to feel as though what I'm feeling is just insignificant. And I think one of the things that I loved about being on the show was I identified and could remember times when in my own life, my feelings were not being validated or taken seriously. And to see a show cope and deal with and acknowledge that fact felt very satisfying and it resonated with me. And if it's going to resonate for me in my 20s playing this teenager, I'm sure it's just what every teenager needed. But I wasn't like sure until you get the response. And obviously it was the right response for our time and continues to be through time. You know, we're 25 years on now. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I try to bring that to my relationship with my son today. Hmm. I never try to, I try to do better by him. And I take his feelings seriously and I want him to feel heard and I want him to also hear me. And I also want him to say, I want him to know, like, I know I'm the grown up in the room, but I don't have it fucking figured out either. Like we're just, we're doing the best we can with the tools we have and the information at the time. And we may later in 20 years look back on it and go, that was completely erroneous. But I will promise you that I will own that. You know? Yeah, that's so lovely. I love that you said that. So it's the end of season three when you first find out that they're going to create this spinoff show called Angel Mm -hmm. and that they are going to bring your character along over there. You would be the one original cast member from Buffy to be going over to Angel. I've always been curious like what that was like for you learning that that was going to happen because at the time that's a big risk. It was incredibly flattering and kind of surprising. I didn't know that I was making an impact. I didn't know what was going on in the message boards. I didn't really know until I think one time I was kind of protesting a Cordelia moment. And then the producers had said, like, calm down. This is why America loves you. And you're going, oh, America loves me? Like, it was like new information for me. So to hear that, then I was being invited to go on to the spinoff show and have the opportunity to just be on a cast of three people instead of five or plus, 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 
I would really have a moment to be able to explore her on a very deep, meaningful level. And I was very terrified by that, that like responsibility, you know, I was kind of insecure and not sure that I would live up to the task. I had a lot of anxiety. I still am a pretty anxious person. And I was simultaneously in a lot of fear because I didn't know what kind of financial responsibility or insecurity that would bring on. And my first response was, thank you so much. If it fails, can I come back? Mm. I need to know that I have like that what is that when you're a trapeze artist, you have a net, just to make sure that I had a a safety net to fall into. Can I come back? And he said, yes. And I said, great, let's go. I'm a person. I like to plan. I like to feel safe. I want to make the safe decision, the right decision, you know? Let's take a break. And we're back with Charisma Carpenter. I've always wanted to ask you Because you're not really properly written off of Buffy. You know, when season four of Buffy begins, this has been one of the few inconsistencies on the show that's always kind of bugged me. We just never really, unless you continue on to Angel, as most people did, if you were just watching Buffy, Cordelia kind of just disappears. And she doesn't cross over to Buffy to kind of explain that she's with Angel now. Right. But I think they talk about her. They do, but I just... Like, they talk about it. Yeah, yeah. But then you just don't physically see her crossing over. Yeah, I've never thought about that. I just think at the time you're just sort of trusting that the people in charge and the powers that be yeah. have it figured out. Because I, again, I was very, this is like my second job. Yeah. And I was just so grateful to be part of the party. I didn't spend a lot of time questioning or calling to attention or I don't think she would do this or I don't think she would do that. Like I just did it because I was actually in really good hands and then probably maybe once or twice been in that level of good hands since, you know, it's like the worst because you have this amazing creative force behind you propelling these amazing characters and with this incredible dialogue. And then you're like, never get that again, (laughs) you know, or like maybe once or twice. Yeah. Did you continue watching Buffy? No, there was no time. There was literally no time. Angel was, it was just the three of us. And, you know, much like Buffy, it was shot at night. So we were working insane hours. I mean, it was a minimum of, minimum of 14 hours a day. Most of the time it went 16. I know that people love to think that actors are like spoiled brats, but we really do work hard. (laughs) We really do have to show up and be present and like memorize things and be able to say them at three in the morning. And you've, feel the feels and that we're like giving you what you get, you know, it's really hard work. You have to be kind of a carny to kind of, you got to be sort of mutant in a way to be able to like do that grind. It's nine months out of the year. It's a lot. I was going to say though, conversations like the one we're having now and people hearing how complex and layered of a human being you are chip away at any notions that people still have about actors sort of not being intelligent or not being hardworking. So I Mm -hmm. think talking to people like you, I think that starts to shift in people's minds. Last Buffy-related question, have you ever seen the musical episode? No, but I've seen, like, bits of it. I've seen the trailer. I've seen that. You know, I tried to go back to Buffy with my son when he was around 10, and he hung in for, like, three episodes. He just lost interest. So I really did try to attempt to revisit the series through the eyes of my kid, but it didn't work out. So, no, I never saw it. And I never saw the episode where Joyce dies. I really really need to make an effort to do that because I hear amazing things about those episodes. If you do watch them, will you yeah. will you message me just because I, I want to know <laughs> your thoughts immediately after you do? I think the main thought is going to be, oh, thank God I was an angel and I didn't have to sing. <laughs> thank God I got spared. Nobody needs to hear that. So the character of Cordelia, as she continued on to Angel, has really become a gay icon. I just feel like, and you Tell know- more. Well, it's just so interesting to me. Well, obviously, I think a lot of gay men resonate with the character of Buffy because of her strength, but there's something about Cordelia. She's just sort of that classic female character that resonates with gay men. She's totally sure of herself. She gets what she wants. She has the attention of boys, the admiration of girls. She's like a good student. She can kick ass. Like, she kind of was the full package. Are you aware of the fact that Cordelia is this gay icon? I mean, now that you're telling me it, if I were to reflect on it, then I would say that I think a lot of gay men like respond well to me because of that character. But I don't 
know that it's like an a gay a gay icon. It's not like share level. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, we love her. And I love that you're explaining to me why, why it resonates with the gay community. Yeah, I mean, also think the fashions. I mean, when I think of the the prom dress, excuse me, no, the homecoming dress mm. from season three of Buffy, that color mm. green as a fashion lover. Mm. And I interviewed Cynthia Bergstrom and we talked at length about we those. Did. Yeah, and we talked at length about those two dresses. First of all, she had very nice things to say about you and particularly mm. how collaborative you were with her. Ah, she was wonderful to me. But that's another thing about Cordelia was just how... I loved the way she dressed. I loved her hair. She just had these sensibilities that were very resonant then and now. So you go over to Angel. You're on this show for four seasons. I'm going to ask you the question that I know you get asked a lot, but I am curious and I'm curious if there's any... Try to keep it fresh. Well, I mean, if there's any nuance you can add to it, because when I posted Uh online and said I was going to interview you, the number one question fans of yours were asking me was what went down in season four that precipitated Cordy's exit because... No one wanted it. It was like that character that everyone loved that they didn't want to see go. You know, that's such a great question. And I wish I had more insight. I only know from my point of view. I don't know what happened in the writer's room. Just recently, I've learned that the writers didn't know how to facilitate her. They didn't know how to make it work where you have now two characters working for redemption. She's a higher being and da, 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 da. Like, I just think that they felt unclear. She had no voice. And for me, I felt like Cordelia is truly the voice of a middle-aged white man named David Greenwald. And he embodied her. He championed her. And he went over and show ran Angel. And then he didn't feel valued by the network or by the studio. So he left. And then Tim Minear stepped in and he was show running. And we were still hanging in. We were still doing great. And I think then more changes. And then Serenity, ha- um, not Serenity, Firefly. Firefly happened. Yeah. And so then the shows were growing and growing. And so then the talent pool was being stretched and placed in other places. And so then the redhead stepchild that was Angel got sort of forgotten. And I don't mean to insult the people that were there because I know they tried their best and I know that they put blood, sweat, and tears into the job as well. But Cordelia suffered. Yeah. She suffered without Tim. She suffered without David Grimo. And those were the two people that understood her best. I think one of the best seasons for Cordelia was season three, you know, that whole Pylea thing. Like she shined. Like that was her season, you know? And I remember getting a call from Joss and David because I always had an acting teacher that would coach me every single day on set because I had such high anxiety and that I would just run lines, run lines, run lines, run lines. So I wouldn't like panic and forget, which I did. And it was to the frustration of everyone. So I try to minimize that to a max. I want to ask you a question about a rumor. And if you don't want to respond, you say no, and then we'll cut it out completely. (laughs) But there have long been rumors that your pregnancy somehow impacted the decision to have Cordelia exit the show from the writer's room, that they were not equipped to write around your pregnancy. Is that ever something that you've heard? I mean, it was 100% not expected. I don't know why it wasn't expected. You know, like when you're a 30-year-old woman and you've been on a show for seven years and you've been with the same partner for like five and you do have sex when you're in your 30s, (laughs) you know, like that it's plausible a person could get pregnant and that it shouldn't be just something that could, you know, but I think that the news, despite my efforts to reach the powers that be to inform them of my news, it happened over the summer when I found out before we went back to work and at the end of July, every season started around my birthday, either the 22nd or the 23rd of July. I had tried fervently to get a hold of people. I had my people contact the powers that be. I contacted them personally. I just did not get the response. And then finally, I got a call to you know meet the powers that be in an office. And I was let know how it was fucking everything up for the season. So that's 100% accurate. What's so odd about hearing that story is to think that if something like that were to ever happen today, how that would not be at all accepted. I I, I want to believe that that to be the case. It wasn't supposed to be accepted then. And to be honest with you, I was so afraid to say the truth for fear of those things that we fear. You know, I, I had a little baby to feed. Yeah. And I was a primary caretaker of my family. So like I couldn't afford 
to stay in my truth. I couldn't afford to talk about the way that I was treated. I imagine that had to be so difficult. Beyond. I don't know that my career has ever really overcome it, to be honest. So you come back in season five for one last episode. That was yes. kind of going to be a proper send off of the character. I imagine, especially given the circumstances you just explained, it must have been a little bit strange to be back on that set. What was that like for you to, I mean, I imagine on the one hand, gratifying to have the closure, but also sounds like it was a complex work environment. Not with the castmates, not at all. And not with some of the people that, you know, could talk to me about it. And then in the end, I found out later, and listen, it's not lost on me how well an actor is paid, but I learned later that I was the lowest paid actress in primetime television. And I don't know if that's bad agenting or if that is just like the machine that is, you're not enough, you're not good enough, you create these issues, you have anxiety, you, you know, have to have a coach on set. You know, I was in a sense, and I'm not disagreeing on this, that I was challenging in those areas, but I was always made to feel though that I was also very worth it. So it was always sort of like this, oh my God, you're this huge talent and you know we want to do everything to make it possible for you to be your best and America loves you and you're awesome. And then at the same time, when it came time to talk about my paycheck, it was like, you're a problem. You know, you cost us this, you cost... And so it was always like this building up to knock you down. You know, it was always something like that going on. And it was very disruptive to me as an artist, as you know, a person. And then now as a new mother, you know, I had a lot to traverse and navigate as skillfully as possible. But back in the 90s, you really didn't necessarily have a lot of voice. You kind of as a woman don't even <laughs> in this administration, if it's not made clear, like I'm, I still feel like, yes, there is progression in the movement of women's right to work, women's right to have fair pay and all of these things. There's been tremendous exposure of the undermining that takes place by men in powerful positions where they make you feel like you're extra. Men can be a handful also and be fucking extras and doing drugs on the weekend and like showing up fucked up or whatever the case may be. You are still less than. And I still feel like, yes, there's been progress, but we're not there yet. We're just not there yet. And it was a lot. It was a lot to manage at the time. I do my best. I have done my best to look at my part in all of that, to see things from a production point of view. And I was not perfect. And I think I was doing my best to cope under a tremendous amount of duress. Having a baby should not equate to not having a job the following year. Lots of productions did deal with it. And Aaron Spelling was sued for firing someone. That had happened. I knew what I was sitting on could be potentially explosive, but I was, I felt like I had no agency. There was just nothing I could do about it. Do you feel like for an actress today that was your age at the time, do you feel like she would have and I, I understand this is hypothetical, but do you think that given the shift in climate, and I don't know how affected that shift is, you would know a lot better than I would. Do you think that an actress today would have those same difficulties in dealing with a situation like that? I think no matter what job you have in the workplace, every woman faces that unspoken reality that there are going to be, you're going to pay. You're going to pay for intrinsically just being a woman, <laughs> you know, just like having a reproductive system and to be able to have a baby is a problem. I am a very talented person, but I also have a very strong work ethic. And I think too, that somehow wasn't enough to sustain my job. I want to talk about conventions. What was once kind of seen as like this nerdy sort of place that only like deep, deep, deep fans went. In the last couple of years, cons have become the place to be. Mm. And I know you have taken part in a lot of these conventions. What has mm -hmm. it been like for you meeting your fans in that space? 
it's just mind bending to me that people still stand in line and still want to take a picture with me, still want me to sign something. And that then they're bringing their kids and they're like, oh, this is my kid named Cordelia, or this is my kid Charisma, or like a teenager, even knowing who I am because of the platforms that are available to stream on today. That is never lost on me. It just blows my mind. It just blows my mind. I have had so many impactful experiences with engagements with fans where they've just shared their experience with people in their life like, oh, I married my wife because we bonded over Buffy. Or I saw this series with my mom who was ailing in the hospital with cancer. And this was like what we watched to kind of forget our reality together. This is our show, you know, and now she's gone. And sometimes when I want to feel my mom's presence, I watch Buffy. Like, come on. Let me ask you a sort of esoteric question about that before we wrap up. But I feel like there's a big energy exchange that happens in those moments that can perhaps be overwhelming in that you have lots of strangers coming up to you and telling you that you've played this crucial role in their lives or this character that you've played or or how you portrayed it. And I imagine like sometimes someone might come up to you and say, you saved my life or something. And, you know, you might have just finished lunch and just be getting back into that headspace. Right. Is it ever difficult to contend with having a fandom that is this, I don't want to say rabid because I feel like that comes with a negative connotation, that is this passionate? Let's say that. I think how I got it was my stepbrother just recently married his husband and he wanted me to meet somebody he was dating. This is before he married his husband, but he wanted me to meet somebody that he was dating. And he went off to the bathroom and that friend sat and talked to me. And he was the first person to really explain to me what that meant, like the impact. Because a lot of times when people are in your presence, they're not able to really articulate because it's rushed it's too overwhelming. They have planned what they were going to say, but then the moment is there and it's just out of your head or it's just too much. It's just too much to kind of find the words in such a crucial moment. And he was the first person to sort of really break it down for me. And I understood for the first time, I was like, oh, because most of the time people say, I love you all, but you're not able to understand or make the connection, but why? You know, like, oh, you just love the show or you just love my outfit or you just, but when he was able to explain to me why Cordelia was relevant to him was I was bullied and I was mistreated and what Cordelia's experience was showed me that bullies probably hurt more than I do. You know, it just gave like a three, like I was like, Oh, that's why you got insight and it helped them in their life at that time to sort of push through. Like, I know that they're fronting. I know that that isn't all that. Like, I get that there's more going on. And it was really impactful, that exchange with him. And it changed me. And I suddenly understood the gravity of and what it meant when somebody shared themselves with me that way. When they were able to say like, I watched this show and Cordelia was my favorite because she grew so much and then what she was going through and da, da, da. And this show helped me escape. It was the one thing that I could go to that would make me feel safe or like I didn't have to think about my bad day or being bullied or whatever. It got me through. And I don't even know like how to even express to you what that means to a person, you know, to be told something so intimate and so sweet and so like vulnerable and touching, you know, it's just incredible. So when I go to the cons of 110%, it's overwhelming. 110%, I go home exhausted. But it's not necessarily about getting your ego struck all day long as much as it's just being able to connect with people and knowing that what you did or your work I wasn't responsible for the writing. I didn't dress myself. I didn't like do my hair. I didn't do my makeup. I wasn't responsible for any of those things. I was responsible for saying a line and hitting a mark. And the fact that I got to do those things in, it, in the way that I said it or whatever was a way that they heard it and that it made a difference in their life suddenly gave meaning to this somewhat pithy job that people love to 
say to me, you know, like you're just an actress or you're just this. And it's like, yeah, I'm an actress and you can minimize it and poo-poo it also. But a lot of people are really affected and touched by that character and really affected and touched by the performance of that. And I will always be proud of that. I will always be grateful for that opportunity. Wow. What a lovely, lovely, lovely response. Before I let you go, I would be remiss not to tell you, I am one of those people. And you sort of connected some dots to me just now in what you were saying. Because, you know, we're talking earlier about why is Cordelia this gay icon? And then you sort of just identified it for me because I know for me personally and so many other LGBTQ plus people, we experience bullying growing up. It's Mm. just sort of unfortunately, a byproduct of society as we know it to be. Mm -hmm. And I remember so distinctly, I used to sneak down to my basement to watch Buffy because I wasn't allowed to, blah, blah, blah. And I remember the next day, like as I started watching Buffy, I would come back into school. And when those guys would come and call me a faggot, I remember thinking, it doesn't matter. I'm a slayer. You know, I believed that this world was so fully realized to me that I became imbued with that power that, and it wasn't just the character of Buffy. It was the character of Cordelia. It was the character of Faith. It was Willow. It was all of those female characters, those strong female characters. Joyce, oh my gosh. I remember in knowing that, I became so certain, and I'm like 9, 10, 11 years old at this point, I became certain that it was going to be okay. That those words weren't going to define me. That wasn't going to be my Mm. worth. And so it's funny because I talk about this energy exchange and how I imagine it must be a lot, but it's at the same time as someone on the other side of it, I can't help but not want to give you that energy because this world that you are so much a part of, this world that you helped to build, it saved lives. And in so many tangible ways made people realize that life was not as small as the world they might perhaps have been boxed into. Right. Thank you so much for sharing that with me and telling me that. Of course, it feels amazing. And I'm so grateful that you're here with a microphone in front of you and you're sharing your experience and you're using your platform to sort of share your story in a way that when there is a kid right now in Mississippi or Alabama or Arkansas or Pennsylvania or wherever, and they're being shut down and they're being made to feel less than, and they're being made to told that they're a freak or they don't belong or they're not necessary, that they are imbued with that level of confidence and that they feel like they can slay it and that they are a hundred percent valid. They are needed. You could be the next RBG. You could be the next whoever, you know, like, God, please somebody else be president. (laughs) And the more people we elect in office, the more people that we get in a visible way on social media like you are doing, you are doing your purpose and you are inspiring people to listen to themselves and to like be true and authentic and not be allowed to be stepped on and made to feel small and insignificant. That's not okay. It's just not fucking okay. And I just love that you had that experience and in the face of that adversity said, no, I don't accept that narrative. I don't accept your words as my truth. It takes a lot of courage. Yeah. But like you said, I feel like the older I get too, I now have empathy towards those bullies and a greater understanding of their experiences and recognizing that they too were going through their own stuff. It's just that their means of communicating their stuff to the outside world. Unfortunately, I was debris, sort of caught in the crosshair for them, but I have a greater level of empathy. And I think that's one thing that comes over time. I want to thank you. Hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. I want to thank you so much for your time. I feel like people will have come to this interview thinking, oh, I really want to hear about this actress who I love. I feel like they will walk away from it learning so much more. You are such a thoughtful, introspective, insightful, smart, lovely, compassionate human. And I'm really honored, honored, honored to have spent this time with you. Likewise. I'm so happy you invited me on your show and it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for allowing me to speak and share your platform. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced by Alden Peters with additional editing by Ryan Killian Kraus. We just wanna take one more moment to thank our Patreon subscribers who make this possible. If you are not subscribing to our Patreon, do it today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.